All right, everybody, take your podcast and your blog and your uh, tweets and your post and pass them to the person to the right of you and carry on. Hey, this is Doug Birch, and you're listening to The Fairly Spiritual Show. On today's show, we're going to talk about everyone has an opinion, everyone has a post, everyone has a book, but we don't necessarily have relational accountability to the community of God. The formation of Scripture itself is rooted in community. We'll look at the difference between God's community and our individualistic idea of community. They say that I cannot do what you've called me to. It is not possible, unattainable. I will never see it through, but you've spoken. I remember when I first said blog, and I thought, what a terrible word. I hope they replace that with something else, but it's stuck. We have blogs, and we have podcasts, and we you can tell a bunch of internet nerds created those words, but there's a lot of people with podcasts and blogs and posts and tweets, and everyone has an opinion. And here's the deal. I'm going to talk about something that I'm not immune to, because guess what? You're listening to The Fairly Spiritual Show by the way, which you can find at fairlyspiritual.org, and my Twitter handle is Fairly Spiritual, and you can purchase my book, The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor, at fairlyspiritual.org or amazon.com. Yes, I too have a message to get out there. But one of the problems in this world where we can get information out there is the issue of accountability. Uh, If you've been listening to the podcast uh, over the last few weeks, thank you. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Can you please uh, share it with others? But I've been going over uh, the book that I just released called The Community of God and uh, just going over each chapter and trying to get in-depthly into the importance of community and why it's central to the Scripture. And this is a a topic today that's pretty close to my heart, and uh, particularly because we don't often think about it in the context of the formation of Scripture, and it's from chapter 14, which is just a tiny chapter in the book, but I think it's a pretty important concept, and I'm going to look at this uh, beyond what I even talked about in the book, Uh, the concept of Scripture itself, the Bible, how the Bible was formed. We live in the age of the democratization of information. Well, that's a big mouthful, isn't it? But the democratization of information is we can share information, the people can share information. We don't have to go through gatekeepers. We don't have to go through the powers that be to get our information out there. Uh, before the printing press, um, you like for instance, before the printing press, you had to have a platform for anyone to hear you. I guess you could go to the town square and stand up on a box and yell something, but if you didn't have power, right, they could arrest you, uh, throw you in jail, behead you. You know, If you didn't have power, you couldn't get your voice out there unless you had a mob to back you up. 
you don't have power. So people in power could control who gets to speak. So you look in a church context, who are the people in power? Well, you have the church, religious organizations, uh, denominational heads, uh, people in positions of power. So the pastor can speak, or the bishop can speak, or the priest can speak. Those in positions of power have authority to speak. Uh, you've also seen in um, the modern era who had a lot of authority, those who publish the material. And it used to cost a lot more to publish material. So you'd write your book and you'd have a great idea of what the world needs to know, but you couldn't get anyone to publish it, right? So maybe you photocopy a few or you print things, go to Kinko's or something, and it costs a lot of money and you, you put it in a binder. And frankly, you really can't get it to many people. Uh, so who has the power there as well? The publishing houses. And the publishing houses can determine what message gets out. Who else has the power? Well, the news outlets, uh, the those who control the information, those who own the airwaves, the radio stations. I did a radio show for five years. It was on Salem Communications. And Salem Communications owns uh, a Christian station and a conservative talk station in every major media market. So they control the airwaves and they have editorial content and they are pushing certain agendas. So they have control. Well, in the modern era, we have this amazing democratization of information where through the internet, we can start a blog, we can start a podcast, we can do stuff with almost no cost to us. We can do a free blog, a free WordPress site, and with a very limited amount of money, we can post our ideas, we can post our thoughts, and we can get them out to the world. Uh, now in the publishing industry, we can self-publish. It has never been more easy to self-publish and to get information out there. So we can bypass the gatekeepers. I don't need a pastor to let me speak at his or her church in order for me to get the information out there. There is a radical shift that is occurring in the church where people who did not have voices before have voices to speak. And I don't want to make this all good or all bad. It's just different. One of the strengths of new voices is the marginalized get to speak, right? Because people in power often do not give voice to the marginalized. That's why they're called marginalized, right? To minority groups, to oppressed groups, to unheard groups, to groups who aren't represented on the platform, they don't get to be heard, right? So uh, if you're in a denomination where women are not valued, uh, how do women find value? Well, they begin to speak through the internet, through their own blogs, through their own posts, through their own podcasts. And people who are hungry to hear women speak gravitate towards those posts and blogs and podcasts and authors. And there that fulfills a need and they bypass those traditional places of power. That's a good thing, right? That helps bypass those places of power. One of the things, though, when you had gatekeepers, and whether it was gatekeepers in news sources, with news it's been like this, right? There used to be certain people who would bring us the news. Now there's, what, thousands and thousands of news sites. Anybody can be a news site. Anyone can give information. One of the things that gatekeepers could do is they could maybe filter out what is quality or not quality, right? Now the danger is it could be oppressive. They could decide what is quality and it's not quality. They could give you garbage and say it's good. But they could also maybe say, hey, this is true and this is false. This is something that is trusted. This is something that shouldn't be trusted. 
Now, we have a lot of examples where people in authority have misused that trust, but there were also places, and you all have places like this, there's websites you go to uh, where you trust them, right? When you hear a story or you, theologically, you're concerned about something, there's a website you might go to, there's a person you might go to, there's a community you might go to that has a certain amount of trust, or you trust in them. You trust the integrity of that organization or that group. Well, in the modern era, we have more and more people able to post things, to share their opinions, to publish their work. So the strength of that is more information than ever before, more diversity, more diverse opinions. The weakness of that is we're having more of a difficult time determining what's true and what isn't true, what, what uh, is more important and less important, what has value and what has less value, what is manipulative, you know, what is actually wrong and what is right. Discernment is an issue. How do we discern what is something worthy of consuming and what is something that we should avoid? What should we give our energy to? Especially, they've even done studies that uh, what actually uh, goes viral on the internet is negative. Negative is shared far more than positive. What is polarizing? What is divisive? So, giving you that big concept, and all that to be said is right now we have a shift. And I, I think about this, uh, there was a time where there was a lot said about uh, mega churches and televangelists, right? We had televangelists on TV who didn't have much accountability. They were, you know, asking for money from, we'd say, a, an elderly woman at home who can't go to church. And, and that's the stereotype we use. I'm sure they're elderly men or young men or young women, but we'd use that stereotype. They're being manipulated by these televangelists on TV who say, send us your money and, you know, you'll get rich or you'll be healed. And people would say, that's my church. My church is this televangelist. And we would say, the problem with that televangelist is there's no accountability. They're just using that person at home. There's no relationship. That person at home really has no relationship with the televangelist, and they're just hearing a message, but there's no real connection. Well, the age of televangelists, that's still around, but that's kind of shifting and moving away. There's a new age that's rising up, and there's a, an age of people who are communicating without the traditional lines of communication. There's a new age of celebrity bloggers and celebrity posters, and, and celebrity I'm going to use... Not, they could be very good celebrities, celebrities you like, but they have a certain amount of fame. They've written books that people like. They've, uh, they, are, they speak at conferences. They have wide followings in their podcasts. They're, 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 they're loved and beloved, and, and, they, and they do things that have gathered a crowd around them. But they're not necessarily uh, in the traditional you know, uh, category. They're, they're not pastors. They're not in church structures. They're outside of those traditional structures. And they're sharing their views on God, the kingdom of God, what the church should be, how Christians should behave. Now, everyone has a right to their opinion, but one of the things that is happening is a lot of these opinions are being shared, the, the books that are being published and sent out, the, the podcasts that are being shared are being shared without uh, much relational accountability. And what I mean by relational accountability is they're sharing messages with people who are consuming those messages and putting those messages into practice, but there's a separation between the audience and the proclaimer. Just as there's a separation between the televangelist and those listening on TV, there's a separation between the person listening to the podcast and reading the book, uh, living out the message, and the person who's creating the message. 
as a pastor, if if I preach a message, uh, people are in the congregation. They're going to see me next week. They can argue with me. They can have a, a dialogue. We have to live this out. I can see if their marriage falls apart based on the advice I give. I can see what happens to their kids based on the instructions I give. I can see what goes on because we live in community. However, in this podcast format, I can say things, and you can hear this, but you've never gone to my church or the church I serve, and and I can see some of the fruit of it, but there's a lot of distance between the accountability of my words and how you live out these words. So it doesn't mean that we can't have a relationship, but it means that I'm less accountable uh, to really know how these words are being lived out. And I think there's a danger to that. In fact, that's one of the reasons I like the fact that I'm still actively involved in a local body, because anything that I preach or teach on this podcast, I have to live out in that local body. What you're also finding is some of the people who are speaking to the larger church are actually not involved in local churches. They're speaking in generality to the larger church, but they've given up on gathering in the local church. They're kind of detached. They speak at conferences. They write books. They hang out with their Christian friends, but they don't really have a form of traditionally gathering with people to see the integrity of the words that they're sharing in these book forms, in these podcast forms, in these blog forms. Now, this isn't villains versus heroes. This isn't all bad, all good. It's just a new territory. I bring this all up to contrast that with how the Bible was written. The Bible itself shows the value of community because the Bible was written within community. In the Old and New Testament, the words that we consider to be sacred, and I consider the Word of God to be sacred, was written in community and to communities. I think about the Apostle Paul's letters. They weren't just written as general letters. They were written to people that he had relationship with, to leaders he had relationship to leaders where, and even if he didn't have relationship, like, you know, there's a question about Romans. How much did he know? Who, who did he know? Who was Romans written to? But there's someone he knew who first got the letter. There was a group of people he knew, and people knew the people who knew the people. There was a relational tie there, and there was an accountability in that relational tie. We see that in the book of Acts, that that Paul wanted to make sure the Jerusalem council knew him, and the Jerusalem council wanted to make sure they knew Paul, and, and Paul and Barnabas wanted to know each other, and Peter and Paul wanted to know each other, that there was this relational accountability. And so the scriptures themselves were written in the accountability of the local body. They were written not just to individuals, but to communities. They were read in communities. It's amazing how we read scripture. People say, well, I just need my Bible and my relationship with Jesus. But these letters themselves were written to be read in churches. They weren't written just to Carl. They were written to be read in a group. The group gathered and they said, here's what Paul has to say to our church, or, or the book of Revelations. Here's what John has to say to our churches. They were shared from church to church. They didn't have meaning in individualistic terms. They only had meaning in their collective importance. They would not have even been written if the church had not gathered together and existed. The reason the Old Testament and New Testament was even written is because it was written for a community, a gathered community that needed a purpose in its gathering. And to take the Bible, which is written for gathered people as the gathered body of Christ in the Old and New Testament, and then to separate it from its original purpose to make it about individual purposes is to separate it from its primary use. 
The scripture itself was written to communities. It was formed in community. It was shared through communities. The scripture was not necessarily shared from individual to individual because it wasn't about printing presses. Not everybody didn't have a copy. So even the letters, they were written down and then transcribed. And then those went to another leader of another church and people gathered together and they listened collectively to Paul's letter or to John's letter or to Peter's letter or to the gospel of Mark or to the gospel of Luke. They read these letters for the first, for many years, for many, many years, the scripture itself could only be approached within community. It could only be understood. And in some cultures, the scripture was so sacred and oppression was so great that they had maybe one Bible or one text and they would hide it away somewhere and they would gather together as a church and they would go into the secret hiding place that one person knew, or oh, actually more than one in case that person died, but a few people knew where that scripture was and they'd pull the scripture out and they would open the scripture up. If you go to a Greek Orthodox church, um, although the service is in Greek and you probably won't understand it, you'll see at the beginning of the service, someone will come out from the side of, of uh, the, the sanctuary and, and they'll bring out this ornate Bible or they'll bring out this, this Bible that is wrapped and it's you know wrapped in a cloth, and they open the cloth, and it's the sign that that they once had to hide the Bible, and someone would come out, and they would take the Bible that was in hiding, and they would unwrap it, and then people would hear the word of God, and we find the same thing with the scrolls in the Old Testament that that, and you think about uh, how the Jews were persecuted and 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 literally you know cast out of cities and out of countries, and people took the the word, the Old Testament, and they held it so close to them that they. They held it to them with their lives that people gave gave up their lives to hold on to that so that the body could hear the words of Isaiah or the Psalms. And then they, they, they literally didn't have access all week to the Psalms and they would come to the house of the Lord and they would hear the Psalms being read or sung. They didn't have access to the letter uh, Luke's letter or gospel or to Acts, so they would come to the house of the Lord and they would hear Acts being proclaimed. Or they'd come to the temple and they would hear the words of the Lord. The sharing of the word itself is or was a community expression, and the word was distributed and spread from church to church, from community to community, and it's been done that way in the missionary work of the church, in every persecuted region, the Bible has been shared from family to family to community to community. And in America, we turn it into this individualistic thing. I got it on my phone, and I can go off by myself in the mountains, and I can read the scripture and have it to myself. The formation of the canon itself. You know, there's a lot, lots of talk and debate about the formation of the canon. The canon is what we agreed upon with the Old and New Testament. And people disagree about this, and there were councils on what should be in the New Testament and not in the New Testament or in the Old Testament. But one of the things that is clear, uh, a council could not have gotten together and just forced people to accept books. They couldn't have just said, hey, here's the books you got to read. You got to read, uh, you know, first uh, Jacob being, uh, or, or just some, you know, Hezer and Nehemiah Gazua. You know, you, they, they couldn't have just thrown a book that people are like, I never heard of that book. They couldn't have done that. They had to pick books that people were familiar with. Part of the canonization is the practical reality that these letters had been spread from church to church and they had become accepted. 
Now, there were some controversial ones where people were a little reluctant, like, I don't know about Revelations. I don't know about Peter. I don't know. There were, there were, there was arguments there. But the vast majority of the New Testament, uh, the churches had already accepted it. It had already been spread from church to church, and they had accepted it relationally. The word itself was written to a community, relationally. It spread through a community. It was read through a community. And even there, we, we make scripture. We say, we say to people, you need a Bible so you can have your personal faith and your personal walk and your personal religion. It's amazing how everything we turn into an individualistic pursuit when it started and was formed and had tremendous value in the, in the Bible as a community expression. At the accountability side, and this is just, I don't talk about this much in the book, but one of the things that is troubling to me in our current flow of information is the danger of how we communicate now. We're not communicating through communities anymore. We're just communicating ideas. Well, I should say just, but this is the extreme of it. We're rallying around ideas instead of communities. And I'll explain. This is what happens in the internet age. And, and you'll see this. The progressive Christian versus the conservative Christian. And I'm not making like one's positive, one's negative. The progressive Christian and the conservative Christian. What, what we have is we have, an, and I could list some uh, progressive Christians and some conservative Christians. We have progressive Christians who basically just promote their progressive ideologies, their, their points. Very, just very strong, very clear. Here's my progressive points. And can some conservative Christians who promote their conservative ideologies very strongly, just right down the line. And they pr present those, they do their podcasts, they do their conferences, they invite the guests with similar views, and they basically just unite people around their points. It's a, it's a polarizing kind of way of promoting the gospel. Just unite around my points. You, you one of us, you, are you a progressive? Are you a conservative? Unite around us. There's, there's very little even thought in ways of having a, a diverse community. It's just, this is who I am. This is what I believe. Unite around me. This is how our media is structured. That's why we have conservative news and progressive news. We've got you know Fox News or MSNBC. We don't have as much progressive stuff as we have as far as um, conservative stuff, and people might argue with that, but we have these clear, you know, clear ideas of we're either progressive or conservative. We're just one or the other. And then people rally around that information. That's not how you're supposed to structure a church. A church is about uniting a community with Christ. Now, when you pastor a church, in my church, there's Republicans and Democrats, there's conservatives and progressives, there's, there's a whole group of people. And I don't just get up there and, and say, you know, who's going to rally around one opinion? My goal is to serve the body. Now, I'm going to serve Christ, but I'm also going to serve the body. So I'm going to speak in a way that makes sure that I serve everyone in the room. I'm going to speak in a way that I want to make sure that my conservative and my progressive friends are honored and loved and respected. So I'm going to speak in a way that's not incredibly polarizing. Even if I say my opinions that might align me a little bit more progressive or a little bit more conservative, I'm going to speak in a way that unites people around the body and the family. It's a family dynamic. Like in a family, my goal in my family is for my brothers and sisters to love each other. It's not just for the conservatives to hang out or the progressives to hang out. But what you're seeing in our modern communication, it's not about the family of God. It's about the ideologies 
And, and you and you see this uh, all the time. I see this in social media. They're like, if your pastor doesn't preach this this week, leave that church. I see this all the time. To me, this is one of the the most extreme statements. If your pastor isn't talking about this this you know this week, whatever the issue is, if they're not talking about racial reconciliation, if they're not talking about justice, if they're not talking about, and I'm not saying these aren't important issues, but someone will just flippantly say, if your pastor doesn't preach about this, find another church. To me, that is an offensive statement because churches aren't just ideology, they're relationship. And if you are invested in a church, you're invested in people. To me, that's as offensive as saying, you know, if your husband doesn't say this when you come home, leave your husband. If your wife doesn't say this, leave your wife. The church is that sacred and those relationships are that sacred. Now, if your pastor preaches the wrong thing, you should have a strong conversation. And, you know, if they didn't talk about the right thing, I'd, I'd say, you know, if your pastor doesn't preach about this this Sunday, you have a strong conversation. And you talk about if we continue down this road, I'm not going to be able to exist in this congregation. But the flippancy of saying, hey, if they don't give you the right content, go somewhere else, is a polarizing partisan view of the kingdom. And it's not the kind of view that you see in the Bible. In the Bible, you're forming communities, and there's dialogue and family and discussion and deep, deep issues. I mean, the fact that there's deep sin going on in the Corinthian church shows that there's a lot of family dynamics going on where people are really trying to get along before someone gets kicked out. But they're not just uniting around ideology. They're uniting around being brothers and sisters in Christ. It doesn't mean you don't share the truth, but you share the truth in a different way. What's happening right now with our lack of accountability is you don't have to be accountable in the internet age. You don't. I found this as a radio host. I tried to do a show that was moderate, that included Republicans and Democrats, and I was you know, disliked on all sides. I was on a station that had primarily just conservative talk. And, and I tried to, to, I wanted to honor anyone who showed up. I wanted to be, even if they disagreed with me, they knew I loved them and they knew there was a place for them. But you know, that's not how radio works. It's either conservative talk or progressive talk. We don't even know how to passionately talk about things and still welcome people from a different perspective. And we can do that when we don't have accountability. I can just say, hey, you know, tough, just, just you know, don't listen if you don't want to listen. It's one of the problems with Protestantism. You know, I see this. People say, well, just, you know, I left the evangelical church because I don't like what they're doing. You know, Catholics used to say there's one church, right? There's just one. They still do, right? But they've made some exceptions here. But there's just one church. You can't leave the one church. So when you believe there's one church, you don't just say, if you don't like it, leave it. You find a way to work together as the family of God. But the Protestant thing is, well, you don't like it, just go somewhere else. You don't like it, go somewhere else. You don't like it, go somewhere else. What, ha what happens with that? Instead of uniting as a family, we unite around ideology. I mean, right now, you, you literally, if you research on social media, you'll find some of the fights that are occurring between progressive and conservatives are, they're literally between family members. The dad was an extreme far-right conservative, and now the son is an extreme far-left uh, progressive. And they're arguing their ideology, and the church is fighting between who's going to win in that ideology, and they're building camps around each other. But the lack of relationship is astounding. 
Ironically, people leave churches because they don't like how the church is not working together. And yet on social media, they're doing the same thing as a dysfunctional church. They're forming camps where they only love the people who are like them and the people who aren't like them, they ridicule and they judge. It's the same spirit. It's our camp and their camp. What are churches supposed to do? Find a way to love each other and connect in meaningful, loving ways, even when you profoundly disagree about important theological issues. And yet in social media, we don't have to do that. I'll just unfollow you and block you, and my side's right and your side's wrong. And I'll unite people around me, and we'll just get enough people on our side, and you'll get enough people on your side. That's a weird game of Red Rover. You ever play that game, Red Rover, Red Rover? It's a terrible game where you send someone over, and they try to break through the line. If they can't break through the line, if you've never played it, I don't know why I'm explaining it. If you played it, you understand. I don't need to explain it. If you've never played it, an explanation is not going to make any sense. But it's some weird game where one side is trying to win and defeat the other side. The scripture was written to communities. The authors had relationship with the audience. The audience had relationship one and another. The word was spread from person to person. And this to me is the important thing, that whenever I'm communicating, I need to have relationship as much as I can. And if I'm communicating to strangers, then I need to make sure that the stuff that I'm communicating, I'm also living out in relationship. That I'm not out there telling pastors and preachers and teachers and people how to live their life and yet living in isolation by myself without learning how to live this out in community. I was an expert at telling pastors how to pastor before I became one. And I'm, I was an expert at telling the church what was wrong with the church until I actually had to abide in the church and figure out how to do it. One of the reasons I wrote The Community of God is I believe we need to look at what the Bible says about community and then find a way to facilitate community. And it may look way different than anything you've ever seen, but all of us are called to facilitate communities, not just spout ideologies. And that's hard. But to me, facilitating community is treating people more like a brother or sister. And my brothers and sisters, we don't all agree on the same thing. We don't all have the same political agendas. We don't all have the same theological conceptions of how God operates in the world. But the family is so important that I'm going to communicate in a way so that we'll get together for Christmas and Thanksgiving and birthdays and parties and whenever we can. And I'm not going to say, well, you know what, just forget it. I don't care whether you're in my life. I'm always going to communicate in a way so that I can have a relationship with my brother and relationship with my sister and relationship with my family. I'm going to do everything in my power to try to have a relationship. It might not be possible, but that's going to be my goal. And I'm supposed to not just treat my family that way, but every person on the face of the earth with that same kind of spirit. Relationally, that's how the scripture was formed. That's how I think we should communicate. All right. If you'd like more information on community, I would love it if you could pick up my book, The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor. There's an audible version as well. You can pick that up. Go to amazon.com uh, for to pick it up there, The Community of God, A Theology of the Church from a Reluctant Pastor, or you can go to my website, fairlyspiritual.org. Uh, also, uh, just, hey, make room for the Lord. He knows you by name. He loves you dearly you can follow me on twitter at fairly spiritual this theme music is by my brother dan feel free to check out his music on itunes i'll see you next time they say that i cannot do what you've called me to it is not possible unattainable i will never see it through
my dreams with you.